0: Psalm 138, verse 2 reads, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. Moses needed a name. When God met Moses on the holy mountain, he gave the former prince of Egypt a tall order. He told Moses that he'd been chosen to deliver the Hebrews from their enslavement in Egypt. But two issues immediately drew Moses' concern. First was his reception by the Egyptians. I mean, Moses asked God, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Egypt was the most powerful nation on the earth. Moses, uh, the Pharaoh, the most powerful man. I mean, it could be hazardous to his health for Moses to just sashay into Pharaoh's court and demand his cooperation. A little apprehension on Moses' part was only natural. But Moses' second concern is a surprise. For he was equally concerned about the reception he would receive from the Hebrews. Moses spoke to God again. When I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? It was almost as dangerous for Moses to approach the Hebrews on behalf of God as it was for him to approach the Pharaoh on behalf of the Hebrews. Why would the Hebrews accept a former Egyptian as their deliverer? Why would their God pick one of their enemies as the answer to their prayer? I mean, Moses needed some cooperation here. He needed some authorization that he could present to the Hebrews. And so he asked God for his name. Now understand the false gods of the ancient world were visible, tangible entities. The land of Egypt was a land of idols. Thus the name of a graven image was not nearly as important since you could see the carved image. The Egyptians saw their gods because they built them, they fashioned them. They associated their gods with a visual image. But the real God, the God of the Hebrews, was the unseen God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says of the one true God, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. The book of Hebrews says of Moses, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses couldn't see God. But he endured because he knew God's name. The Hebrews would also follow God, not because they could see him, but his name inspired faith. Thus, at the outset of Moses' ministry, God revealed his name. I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What an awesome name this is. The phrase I am is the present tense of the verb to be. The name speaks of existence and reality and self-sufficiency. In taking this name, God claims to be the ultimate reality, the only truly self-existent one in all the universe. Hey, God has need of nada. In contrast, we're such needy people, aren't we? Our lives are so fragile. We depend on God for the air we breathe and for our next breath. God alone is the great I am. If you or I had sent Moses to Egypt, we would have told him to say, tell them that the great I ain't has sent you. Or maybe the great I wish, or the great who's that. Only God can say, I am that I am has sent you. And the name God gave to Moses became the foundation of Hebrew faith. The name Yahweh, or its anglicized or English form Jehovah, is from the verb to be. And it harkens back to Moses' initial encounter with God. You see, it's difficult to trust in an invisible God, but not when you know His name. Jehovah became the solid ground on which God's people over the centuries would step out in faith. This is why the name Jehovah became so revered among the Hebrews. It was the most sacred of all of God's names. In the third commandment, God told his people, You shall not take the name of the Lord or Jehovah your God in vain. Did you know that in Leviticus chapter 24, a man was given the death penalty for blaspheming the name of God? To trivialize or to disrespect God's name, carried stiff and swift penalties. Later in Hebrew history, the name of God became so revered that the Jews were afraid to even speak it. When they read the Scriptures and when they came to the word Jehovah, instead of speaking it out, they would bow their heads and read simply the name. Eventually, the Hebrews became afraid to write the name. So they wrote only the consonants and they left out the vowels. It's amazing the reverence they gave to the name of God. Certainly, they placed extreme importance on God's name. Today, visitors to Jerusalem's western wall, the Wailing Wall, they write prayers on little slips of paper and they place them in the crevices of that rock wall. Since the papers contain prayers, the rabbis are concerned that God's name might be written on the papers. So at the end of the day, when they go to clean the area and dispose of the papers, since they don't want to be guilty of just throwing away the name of God, they give all of those papers a religious burial. They go to great lengths to keep from taking the name of God in vain. And so, with that bit of background, I want you to feel the real force of this morning's text. For here in Psalm 138 verse 2, David says, of the I am that I am, this one true God of the universe, he says, you have magnified your word above all your name. I mean, God's name was the bedrock of their belief. Men died in deference to the name. To the Hebrew, nothing was as significant as God's name. Yet David makes this astonishing statement There is one item more important than God's name. The great I Am has exalted His Word even above His name. There are two items every man possesses. His Word and His name. If you're a man of your Word, it will earn for you a good name. When your name is spoken, it'll be respected. But if your Word can't be trusted, your name will be mud. And this is why God exalts His Word above His name. We respect His name and the nature it reflects chiefly because His Word is so sure and certain and reliable. And if God exalts His Word above His name, this should be a clue to us. For of all our pursuits, none should be more vital than the study and application of God's Word. You know, on occasion, someone will come up and they'll suggest, Pastor Sandy, we need to worship more at this church. Could we extend the music time? Or Pastor Sandy, you need to talk about some social concerns. You you spend all your time on the Bible. You need to keep us informed on some current events. Or Pastor Sandy, let's spend some time in prayer and fellowship during our service. And, And I want you to understand, I'm all for worship. And proper social involvement is crucial. And opportunities to minister to each other. I'm for that too. But make no mistake about it. When we gather together, there is one overarching, pressing priority that we cannot neglect. And that is the study of God's Word. Again, hear the psalmist. God magnifies His Word even above His name. I don't care what activities your normal week consists of. Maybe you broker million-dollar deals and turn over valuable real estate. Perhaps you consult with physicians on life and death matters. Perhaps you lobby Congress and you represent vital national concerns. Maybe you're the closer for the Atlanta Braves and you're needed each night to get the final out. I don't care how significant, how critical your activities seem to be. If God elevates His Word even above His name, then there is nothing more important for you and I to do than to dig into the Bible, discover what it says, and apply it to our lives. It is the one activity above all others that should never be neglected. God prioritizes His Word. And yet today, the study of God's Word is not the main concern of many churches. All kinds of activities clutter the calendar to the neglect of God's Word. There are support groups and aerobic classes and concerts and potluck dinners and softball games and political rallies. All these things can crowd out systematic Bible study. As I look back in the rearview mirror of my life, I grew up in southern churches that majored on morality and legalism. I was taught the do's and don'ts, but not always the why's and how's. I was raised in the Bible belt, but I got a lot more belt than I did Bible. (laughs) You see, the churches I attended, they taught from the Bible. But they didn't teach you the Bible. And this is a not-so-subtle difference. In most churches, the pastor sets the agenda, and he uses verses to support his thesis That's a far cry from teaching the Bible and letting the book speak for itself. God needs to set the agenda, not us. Christians need to know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You know, a recent poll revealed that 93% of Americans own a Bible. In fact, 75% of American households own two or more copies of the Bible. And yet 50% say they never read it of those who claim to be born-again Christians, even of those folks, only 18% read their Bibles daily. After a similar survey, George Gallup concluded, it's time to sound the alarm. There exists today a shocking lack of Bible knowledge. Hey, it's tragic, but churches today, even in the Bible belt, are turning out biblically illiterate Christians. In fact, I know churches and denominations and pastors that will defend the infallibility of the Scriptures to their death. They just never teach it. The prophecy in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, sadly is coming true before our very eyes. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. In light of this deficiency in Bible knowledge, it reminds me of a young man named Claude. Claude was a Cajun, lived down on the bayou. He was a zealous new Christian. And one day, Claude approached his pastor. He asked if he could serve in the church. The pastor said, well, Claude, can you read and write? Well, Claude had to admit that going to school had not really been his top priority. He'd been busy hunting gators and eating gumbo working on the shrimp boats. Well, the pastor asked him again. He said, well, Claude, do you know your Bible? Claude replied, well, sir, I's pretty good in the scriptures. I knows my Bible from limb to limb. The pastor then asked him his favorite Bible story. Claude answered, I like the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said, well, great, Claude, tell me the story. And here's how Claude told it. Once there was this man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thorns and the thorns sprung up and choked him. And as he went on his way, he didn't have no money and he meets the queen of Sheba. And she gives him a thousand talents of gold and a hundred changes of raiment. And he got into a chariot and he drove furiously. And as he was driving under a big juniper tree, his hair got caught in the limb of that tree. And he hung there many days. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And he ate 5,000 loaves and two fish. One night he was a hanging there asleep when his wife Delilah comes along and cuts his hair. And he drops. And he falls down to the stony ground. But he gets up and he went on. And it began to rain in 40 days and 40 nights. And he hid himself in caves and he lives on locusts and wild honeys. And while he was there, he met a servant who said, come take supper at my house. And he says, no, I won't. I married a wife and I can't go. Well, the servant went out into the highways and the hedges and compelled him to come. And after supper, he went on down to Jericho. Well, When he got there, he saw that old Queen Jezebel sitting way up high in the window and she laughed at him. And he said, "Throw it down out of there." And they throwed it down 70 times seven. And the fragments, they picked up 12 baskets fulls, sides women and children's. And didn't they say, "Blessed are the peacemakers." Now whose wife you suppose she'd be in the judgment day? Well, hey, biblical, biblical ignorance is funny when it comes from a new believer named Claude. But it's distressing if it's found in a person who's been a Christian for a while. You know, someone once commented on the ministry of a particular church. It's a mile wide and a foot deep. In other words, large numbers of people are brought in with fluff and entertainment and a few Bible bits, but there's no substance. You see, for people to grow spiritually, they need to be fed a steady diet of not just milk, but the meat of God's Word. They need more than snacks and fast food. Folks need spiritual protein. They need to be challenged with a biblical outlook to see today in light of eternity. It's been said to measure the success of a church's ministry, its members should not only be counted, but weighed. There's a quote in the Haley's Bible Handbook that I agree with heartily. A church that does not enthrone the Bible in the lives of its people is false to its mission. If God has exalted His Word even above His name, can you and I esteem it too highly? Once Zach and I we were given passes to the Masters Golf Tournament, toughest ticket in sports. We sat down next to a fella on the 18th green. Turns out, this guy, he owned a bar in Missouri, and he would barter keg parties for his master's badges. Well, it was pretty obvious after talking to him for a few minutes that this guy had no idea about Christianity, what Christianity was about. But after we had talked for a while, and he had been talking about himself, he finally turns and he asks me, he says, well, what do you do for a living? Well, when I told him he was a pa- I was a pastor, he got all excited. He had lots of questions for me, but I'll never forget his first question. He looks at me and he says, man, he says, I once had this friend who wanted to be a pastor and he went to this, what do you call it, seminary place. He went for three, maybe four years and I've never figured out why you need so much schooling. All you guys got is one book. Hey, that Missouri bartender was more insightful than a lot of pastors and church members. When will we realize that God has made this really simple? He's compiled the whole course in a single volume. God isn't asking you to pour over thousands of books and memorize libraries. He's only given us one book. I mean, when we get to heaven... Our excuses for being ignorant of God's Word are going to look pretty flimsy. God, I was too busy with work and friends and carting the kids to the Little League. I just didn't have much time left over. Or God, after working out in the yard, I was just too tired to concentrate. My, I can hear God's response. Wait a minute. You had 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and all you had to learn was one book. Reminds me of the boy who went off to a liberal seminary. His father worried that the seminary would strip his son of his confidence in the reliability of the Bible. Well, figuring that the book of Jonah would be a target for the skeptics, he warned his son. He said, don't let them take Jonah from you. Well, two years later, the son returned home. And as soon as he saw the boy, his dad asked him, he said, son, do you still have Jonah in your Bible? The young boy laughed and he said, no, I don't, neither do you, Dad. The father got upset. He said, of course I do. He said, no, you don't. Go look. And so the father, he grabbed his Bible and he opened it up and he tried to find the book of Jonah, but the pages that consisted of Jonah had been neatly clipped out of his Bible. The son explained. He said, Dad, he said, I cut Jonah from your Bible two years ago before I went to seminary. And then he told his father why. He said, Dad, what's the difference whether I lose the book of Jonah through studying under non-believers or you lose it through neglect? See, I know you believe in the Bible, but do you know it thoroughly? Do you study it vigorously? And hey, we're going to be held responsible for knowing the whole book. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All the Bible is inspired, not just portions. Leviticus is as much God's Word as Luke. Ruth, as inspired as Romans. We need the whole counsel of God, not just part and parcel. A.W. Tozer once said, Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. I want you to listen to this poem. I suppose I knew my Bible, reading piecemeal, hit or miss, now a bit of John or Matthew, now a snatch of Genesis. Certain chapters of Isaiah, certain Psalms, the 23rd, the 12th of Romans, 1st of Proverbs. Yes, I thought I knew the word. But I found a thorough reading was a different thing to do. And the way was unfamiliar when I read the Bible through You who treat the crown of writings as you treat no other book, just a paragraph disjointed, just a crude, impatient look, try a worthier procedure. Try a broad and steadier view. You will kneel in very rapture when you read the Bible through. Man, I agree wholeheartedly. Did you hear about the lonely elderly lady who bought a parrot to keep her company? Oh, she figured that she could always, with a pet parrot, she'd always have somebody to talk to. But after bringing the bird home from the store, she couldn't get the bird to talk. So finally, she goes back to the pet store and she complained to the owner. That's when he told her, he said, well, does your parrot have one of those little mirrors in the cage? You know, parrots love to see themselves. They love mirrors. And so she bought a little mirror and she took it home. She put it in the cage, but still the bird wouldn't talk. So she returned to the pet store. She complained again. This time the owner says, does your parrot have one of those little ladders? In his cage. You know, they love to run up and down those ladders. And you know, a happy parrot is a talkative parrot. And so she tried a ladder, but again, not a peep from the parrot. And so the lady, she went back again. The third time, she was told, Why don't you try one of those swings? Parrots love swings. Just get him swinging and he'll talk up a storm. So she bought a swing. Well, two days later, she returned to the pet store. When the owner asked her about her parrot, the woman said, he's dead well the man was shocked the pet store owner he asked her he said well ma'am i'm sorry to hear that did your parrot ever say anything before he died and that's when the woman replied he says yes just before he died in this real soft faint weak little whisper he asked me he said don't they sell any food at that pet store You know, as I look back in the rearview mirror of my life, I see churches that rather than feed God's people God's word, they resorted to mirrors and ladders and swings. Folks were invited to look into the mirror. Self help replaced scripture. Ladders and rung by rung formulas replaced faith. Swinging entertainment replaced real spiritual substance. You see, people are like the parrot. They're being told to explore their inner self. Just look into the mirror. They're being told to climb the rungs on a man-made system. They're swinging on an emotional roller coaster and being entertained. All the while, they're dying for lack of food. The Bible. Churches are either like McDonald's or your mother. Either they try to feed you Happy Meals and McFlurries, junk food, or they give you meat and vegetables. Well, I want to feed you like your mother. I don't mind going into the kitchen and cooking up a nutritious meal, but you've got to come to dinner when you're called. If you're out playing around in the yard and don't bother to come, you'll miss out. And today, I want to call you to dinner. For this month at Calvary Chapel, all of our TBGs, all of our through-the-Bible groups are going to be starting Paul's letter to the Romans. What an opportunity this is for you to climb on board. You know, on Sunday mornings, I have 35 minutes to whet your appetite. But I'm under no illusion. More exposure to the Bible is needed to grow a strong faith. Compare that 35 minutes, by the way, to the 28 hours per week the average American watches television. Hey, it wouldn't hurt anybody's spiritual growth to add an hour and a half at a TBG to their weekly routine. You remember the first century, had no printers. That meant that you weren't given a private copy of Paul's letter to take home and cruise over on your own. God meant for the New Testament to be read and deciphered in the fellowship of believers while everyone had gathered and it had been read out loud. And that's the approach we use in our TBGs. I teach chapter by chapter at Calvary 316 and we put it on video. Then in your groups, you watch it and you discuss it and you apply it. It's just a great way to learn the Bible. And I'm sure that there's a TBG group that meets your schedule. You just have to look at it. You just have to open up your announcement sheet. You just have to look at it, and you have to look for it. You have to make a little bit of effort, but you can find one. Trust me, Romans is a great place to get started. Every Bible doctrine finds its best explanation, its fullest explanation in the book of Romans. It's a great place to get started, and I encourage you to do so. You, You won't be disappointed if you do. Well, with the time I have left, I want to stress to you the benefits of your Bible because I'm convinced that most folks totally underestimate the importance of this book. We tend to forget that God has exalted His Word even above His name. I want to read to you Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For this one verse unveils the Bible's enormous influence. It says, For the Word of God is living and powerful, And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Notice, according to this verse, the Bible has three characteristics. It is active. It is effective. And it is incisive. First, I want you to notice, that which God exalts above His name is living. It's active. Earlier I quoted 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know, that Greek word translated inspiration. It's the word theo It's a compound word. Theo or God and nustos or breathed. Literally, the word inspiration means God breathed. Don't think the Bible is the mere words of men. The Bible is divine, it's God's word. Holy men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible is unlike any other book. It has a power all its own. I love Isaiah 55 verse 11. There the Lord says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Notice God's word works. The Word of God goes out empowered by the Spirit of God and it never fails to accomplish its mission. The great reformer Martin Luther once wrote, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Once a young man, he walked into an old country barber shop. The walls were decorated with trophies of wild animals. There was a deer, deer's head with a full rack. And then there was a wild fox, a wild turkey, several stuffed birds. But this young man was unimpressed. You see, he was studying taxidermy. And he was critical of what he said was shabby work. He singled out the owl sitting up on the shelf. He said, look at that drooping, those drooping wings and that crooked beak. Look, look at that, that leg, how fake it looks. Looks all looks so unnatural. Well, he went on and on criticizing the bird when all of a sudden this owl just turned its head and looked right at the man. He had been criticizing the life of a live bird. And this is true of the Bible's critics. They critique a live bird berate it, deny it, say what you want about the Bible, but when it's ready, it'll fly off the shelf and do as it pleases. The Bible is the one book that's self-propelled. When you read it, the author himself works in your heart to help you grasp the message. Second, that which God exalts above His name is powerful. It's effective. There is a verse that illustrates the power and usefulness of God's Word Psalm 119, verse 9, asks a vital question. How can a young man cleanse his way? And I love the logic behind this verse. The psalmist doesn't ask, how can a young child, a little child, cleanse his way? Or a middle-aged woman? Or an old man? Kids and grandmas and geezers, they aren't really known as rebel rousers, are they? So you clean up the way of a grandma. No biggie how dirty could it have been in the first place. But young men, oh my. Young men are cocky and passionate and reckless and stubborn and rebellious and hot-headed and hormonal and impulsive and obstinate and independent. I know because I was one. But here's the point. If you can cleanse a young man's way, you can affect anybody. So how do you cleanse a young man's way? The psalmist tells us, by taking heed according to God's Word. This is why the Bible is so important. The Bible alone can wash and cleanse a soul and renew a mind and transform a character and create a new outlook and break old habits and produce sensitivity and spawn self-discipline and develop faith. Paul tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What can tame a young man's lusts and passions and hormones and impulses? There are a thousand shortcuts. Oh, but just pray over him. Cast the demon out of him. Slay him in the spirit. Get him into Christian music. Enroll him in an accountability group. Hire some cool youth leader. And the list goes on and on. But make no mistake about it, the only hope For a young man to live a pure and godly life is a steady diet of God's Word. And finally, that which God exalts above His name is sharp or incisive. You see, the Bible cuts. It cuts right to the heart. It cuts right to the issue. It reveals our motives. It keeps us honest. Hebrews 4 verse 12 tells us that the Bible is sharper than a two-edged sword. The Bible is a blade. It has an edge. The Bible is like a surgeon's scalpel. It pierces our pride and it dissects our delusions and it lays bare our motives. Go through the Bible and the Bible will go through you. It's God's Word that keeps us on the cutting edge of God's will. You see, your Bible is a two-edged sword. The kind of sword that a Roman soldier would use in hand-to-hand combat. This is why the Bible is so useful in our encounters with our enemies, with the devil, and with his cronies. With God's word, you can slice into the villains of doubt and worry and fear. You can can defend yourself against the things that Satan throws at you. In 1 John 2, verse 14, the apostle writes, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Notice that. They overcame Satan because the word of God abided in them. Hey, the Bible is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. 2 Samuel 23 verse 10 describes the exploits of one Eleazar, one of David's mighty men. We're told he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Notice, he held onto his sword so tightly that his hand literally froze to the handle. And this is how you need to clutch onto God's word. A vice grip on your Bible will ensure victory for your life. Well, John Wesley once wrote, I am a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. A few months hence, I am no more seen. I drop into unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. And God Himself has written it in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me that book. Never forget, if God has magnified His Word, even above His name, how then can we neglect the book of books and not give it the priority that it deserves. May the Lord bless us and help us as we honor the Word by studying it, by learning it, by memorizing it, by applying it to our lives. May the Lord make us people of the book. Father, thank You for Your words today. I pray, Lord, that as a church, Lord, You'll help us to take advantage of the opportunities You've afforded us. Lord, as a church, we do want to enthrone the Bible in the lives of our people. Lord, we do want to take this seriously. We recognize that you have have exalted your word even above your name. And so, Lord, we want to give it the priority it deserves. I pray for our people this morning that they would take advantage of the opportunities that their church provides them. Lord, that they'll come out and study your word and be consistent in it. And to take your word and apply it in their lives. We thank you for the power of the word of God. We pray Lord that you'll help us to continue to press forward. To continue to be people of the book. We love you Lord. We pray these things in Jesus name. And everyone said.